All right, well, it's uh, very good to be with you this evening, and I want to uh, present to you something that really is on my heart and something that, this is really the most important of all the different talks that I give. I'm, I'm a scientist, I like to talk about science and I think and how it confirms God's Word, but when we, when we consider the way society is headed today, we need to really get down to the root of what's, what's going on here and how can we turn things around, or can we turn things around? I want you to consider the United States of America. We have the most churches, seminaries, Christian colleges, Christian bookstores, Christian radio, television of any nation. And for all these Christian resources, would you say we're becoming more Christian every day or less Christian every day as a nation? <laughs> Everywhere I go, people say that. And it seems like it's, it's going, it seems like the rate has accelerated, the rate at which we're becoming a pagan nation. Now, how can that be? A nation founded primarily by Christians and certainly on Christian principles freedom to worship God and so on, individual rights given to us by our, by our creator. It's a creationist document, the Declaration of Independence. How is it that we're becoming a pagan nation? What's going on here? And what I want to do this evening is really give you the key to solving, well, it's really solving all the problems in the world. But, uh, and that won't happen overnight. But I want to give you the key that unlocks the door to solving all the world's problems. Because if you think about it, every problem that we see in society can be traced back to a broken law of God, can it? It's where somebody said, you know, oh, we're not going to do what, we're not going to do what God says. We're going to try it this other way. And that always leads to problems. Really, the, the issue is people have lost confidence in the Bible as the inerrant word of God. And one of the places where the Bible is most attacked, where it's most ridiculed, is in Genesis. Yeah, that's the place where people say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe the Israelites left Egypt, who knows, but, but, you know, Adam and Eve, come on, that's, that's fairy tales. We know millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. That's what we're taught. And we're taught that science confirms that. I don't believe that it does. I believe science confirms Genesis. You see, the real issue behind all these problems is the same issue that's behind the creation-evolution controversy. It's really, it really comes down to God's word versus man's word. When, you, when, when the two are in conflict, which one are you going to trust? Now, obviously, we, uh, that, that really is the bottom line, isn't it? Because you're either going to listen to what God has said in his inerrant, infallible word, or are you going to not and the only alternative is, is either your own opinion or somebody else's opinion. That's really what it comes down to. And this has been an issue since the beginning. Ironically, this began in Genesis because Adam and Eve, were, they, they were given an instruction by God, some instructions by God. And, you know, one of them was don't eat from the fruit of that tree. And they decided, no, we're not going to listen to God's word. We're going to determine truth for ourselves. That's really what, what Eve was doing. She decided that that her mind would be the ultimate standard by which to judge God's word rather than the reverse. It's God's word that will judge our minds. And it's it's, it's funny because some people are are inclined to be a little bit sympathetic to Eve, maybe because of her sin nature. You know, know, how was she supposed to know? I mean, she's got God telling her one thing and Satan telling her another. I mean, you know, which hypothesis to go with? Well, nobody's saying she shouldn't have thought about it. But if she'd thought about it, and she thought, wait a minute, God's the one who made my mind and my senses. So if God's dishonest, I can't even trust my own mind or my senses, can I? Which means Satan, you're a liar, get behind me. Isn't that interesting? See, this, the whole catastrophe could have been averted right there, right? But Eve did a little experiment. She, she decided she would test God. And it wasn't, it's interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't murder. It wasn't adultery. It was, she went off her diet. And, but... <laughs> That seems pretty minor. But you see, it was disobedience to God. It was treason against the king of kings. 
The order that God gave her wasn't that difficult. He gave her so much. You can eat from all these trees, just, just not that one. And that's the one she goes for, of course. And Adam followed suit. And so, really, that's what we do today. We want to trust our mind, our opinion over God's Word. And, and that begins in Genesis, and the erosion of it begins when people disbelieve what happened in Genesis. See, it used to be, you could say, in this nation, you could say certain things that everyone would agree upon, certain uh, moral principles that stem from a Christian worldview. And that's because we were blessed with this Christian heritage. We really are. It used to be you could say abortion's wrong and homosexual behavior's wrong and adultery's wrong. And people would say, I, yeah, well, of course, I understand that. Even people who weren't Christians had that Christian heritage. That, that worldview had permeated our thinking. But today, you say these things and people say, well, not according to my rules. Because they're, not, they're, they're on a different foundation completely. And th- that makes it very hard to reason with people. If evolution is your way of reasoning, then the conclusions you're going to come to, if if you're logically consistent, will be very different from those you come to with a creationist Christian worldview. And by the way, when I talk about evolution, I'm referring to the idea, the the Darwinian idea of common descent, that single-celled organisms, uh, something like, you know, microbes eventually multiplied and and, uh, became all these other creatures on the earth, including human beings. Um, In the evolutionary view, you were related to a turnip. And, uh, yeah, I know I don't believe that, but that's what evolutionists believe. They believe. I mentioned that one time when I was speaking to a group of atheists. I said, you know, you realize in your worldview, uh, your distant cousin is broccoli. And <laughs> afterwards, one of them came up to me and says, weren't you kind of poking fun at us for that? And I said, but isn't that what you believe? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, there you go then, right? I mean, <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reflecting back to you what you believe. I don't believe we're related to broccoli. I do believe we're related to each other because we're descended from Adam and Eve, related to Christ. That's important theologically, because it means he can atone for our sins. I'm going to come back to that a bit later. But, so, you know, that word evolution, sometimes it can just mean change. Well, we all agree in evolution in the sense of things change. The world was once a paradise. Today it's not. Things have changed. The question is what kind of change, and I don't believe in that particular kind of change. Animals do change a bit. They just don't change into other kinds. Now, if creation's true, and it is, if the Bible's true, and it is, then there are certain logical standards that would follow from that. You're going to have laws because we have a lawgiver. We're, we're not autonomous creatures. We can't just do whatever we want. God can. We can't. Uh, he's the creator, and he will hold us accountable for our actions. So it makes sense that we would have laws because we have a creator. God created us, and he, he therefore gets to set the rules, the parameters for the way that we should live, or marriage for that matter. Now, where does this idea of marriage come from, that there's one man and one woman united by God for life? Well, that goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? It's because God is the creator, and he created the family unit, and therefore God gets to define the family unit. He gets to define marriage, not the Supreme Court, God, because he's the creator. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do, too. Where does that idea come from? And, you know, animals don't go around doing that. Why are, why are we different that way? Again, it goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? The origin of clothing is explained there in Genesis uh, chapter 3. Meaning of life. Why is it that human life is valuable and more valuable than something like a carrot, right? I mean, it is. You can eat a carrot and nobody comes over and says, you murderer. There might be some people that do that, but they need help. Um, no, human life is valuable because we're made in the image of God. That separates us from animals, certainly from plants, which God designed to be for food for animals and people. 
And then uh, animals, I mean, God cares about them too, but they're not made in God's image. We have that capacity built into us to, to think in a way that's consistent with God's character. It's been marred by the curse, but not lost. And so that's why I can't just go out and shoot somebody that I don't like. That person's made in the image of God. Okay? Now, if evolution were true, hypothetically, if, if we're just an accident, then why would you have laws? I mean, if evolution, evolution is supposed to proceed by the strong dominating over the weak. But if you think about it, laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong, aren't they? Every law really has that built into it. Uh, so why would you have laws? Why not do what, what you want with sex for that matter? If we're just animals, animals pretty much do what's instinctive, why shouldn't we? Or um, abortion. Well, why not? You know, get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. What's the difference if we're just, if we're just animals that have evolved from the slime over billions of years? And by the way, Jesus in his earthly ministry understood this, that these doctrines go back to Genesis. Jesus often alluded back to or even quoted Genesis. In Matthew 19, when the religious leaders were asking Christ about divorce to explain marriage, he went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2 as the historical foundation for marriage. Isn't that interesting? But what's happened in our culture is, in the minds of many people, that that foundation and creation has eroded. We still have a remnant of Christian thinking in this nation, and praise God for that. But we've lost the foundation for it, because a lot of people in this nation now think that, that human life, that's just the result of chemistry over time. There's no creator, or if, if there is, he, he doesn't really have much to do with, with us. And if that's the case, if, if Genesis isn't real history, then why would you have laws if there's no lawgiver? Uh, why would you have marriage being defined as one man and one woman for life, if that's just a fairy tale? You see, in the secular view, marriage is just something that evolved. It's a cultural trend. And as the culture changes, why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? And that's not a hypothetical uh, situation, is it? That's, that's the very argument that's, that's being made by those who want to uh, destroy the, the biblical principle of marriage and replace it with something very, very different from that. You see, I found that a lot of Christians are very upset by these, these Christian standards that seem to be eroding in our society, and we should, we should be concerned about that. But a lot of them think, but I don't have time to worry about origins because, you know, marriage is under attack and we got bad laws on the books and so on. There is a connection between the two, friends. Because you see, if, if, this is, if this is real history, then marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's it. You can't change that. And so it was necessary to destroy creation in the minds of people, convince them that it's not true, in order to undermine all these other Christian doctrines. Because you can't defend marriage from an evolutionary standpoint. You really can't. It's based in the history recorded in Genesis. We need to recognize that our foundations are under attack. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? A lot of times, uh, Christians even get the idea that, well, you know, they think there's this scientific evidence for evolution. There really isn't. But they get, in, they get intimidated. Isn't that, isn't that true? I'm sure you've run into people like that. And they think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but maybe God used evolution somehow. But then, of course, Genesis would not be real history, would it? And some people, and there are some Christians that claim that, maybe, maybe because they want to be academically respectable, and so they, they want to believe what most of the secular scientists believe, but they don't want to give up on the Bible completely. They want to say, oh, I'm a Christian. And, and so a lot of times they'll say, but Genesis is just, maybe it's just like a parable. It's just got certain spiritual truth in it, but it's not real history. But that's not the way Genesis is written. It's not written as a parable. 
And there, of course, there are sections of the Bible. I understand there are sections of the Bible that are not meant to be read in a wooden, literal sense, like in the Psalms and the Proverbs. When it says there's no rock like our God, it doesn't mean God is basalt. We understand that. It's a metaphor. I get that. And some people have said, well, yeah, Genesis is like that. You know, it's poetic or it's a parable, but it really isn't. In fact, if you look at Genesis, for example, chapter 5, you know those verses you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, they beget so-and-so. Not, not the more common verses that people like to memorize as their you know, life motto, but in any case, uh, yeah, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us that these are real people that lived, and it tells us, uh, in many cases, how long they lived, and it tells us the name of at least one of their children, sometimes several of their children. These, these kind of details, you don't find those in the Psalms. You, won't, you wouldn't find a parable that would have that kind of detail, right? I mean, a parable is where you tell a short story about something that we're familiar with physically to illustrate a spiritual truth, and that was a very common part of Jesus' teaching ministry. But that's not what you see here, right? You wouldn't have a list of genealogies in a parable, that would be ridiculous. Usually you don't even find specific names in a parable. Usually it's there was a certain man or there was a king and what have you. It would be pointless to have a list of, of genealogies. Poetic literature doesn't have this either. You look at the, po- the poetry in the Bible, it's beautiful. It's characterized by parallelism where you have, uh, well, there's different kinds of parallelism, but one kind is synonymous parallelism where you'll say something and you'll say the same thing using different words, the same basic idea. So the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. kind of says the same thing, doesn't it, using different words. It's beautiful. That's not what you find in Genesis, right? This would be a terrible poem, wouldn't it? <laughs> and by the way, those genealogies lead up to Jesus Christ. You can read those in the Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke, through the different, uh, the different lines there. And so here's my question then for Christians who say, I trust in Jesus, and praise God, I'm glad you do. That's, that's essential for salvation. They say, but I'm not sure that Adam is a real person. I think Adam's just a metaphor. Well, then you got a problem, because Jesus is descended from what, a metaphor? That's not going to work, is it? I mean, you don't have to be an expert on genetics to know that a literal person can't be descended from a metaphorical person. That's not going to work. What would the transitional form look like anyway? That's not going to work. It's theologically important that Adam is a real person and really the father of all humanity. And Jesus is his descendant and therefore our relative. Jesus is our blood relative. You say, why is that important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can save you. There's an important concept in Scripture called the kinsman redeemer. It has to be a blood relative. That way, Jesus' blood on the cross counts for us. We're all of one blood, according to Acts 17, meaning we're all descended from Adam. So Jesus is our relative. That's why he can, he can uh, represent us on the cross, pay for our sin. And, he's, of course, he's not only a human being, he's also God, and therefore he can pay an infinite penalty, something that none of us can do. And so you see how the gospel message actually goes back to a literal genesis. Now, none of that would make sense if evolution's true, right? Because, uh, you know, the Bible says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They were used symbolically in the Old Testament to point forward to salvation in Christ, but they can't save you because we're not related to bulls and goats. Unless, of course, evolution's true, in which case that doctrine's gone. See, the gospel message goes back to a literal genesis where, where sin entered the world and death through sin. That's the penalty for sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross as our replacement, as our substitute. And so the question that I might ask people is, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved, or the last Adam, Jesus Christ, 
who, who accomplished salvation. You see, without the first Adam, you'd have to ask, what am I being saved from? It's the first Adam that cast the world into darkness. It's the last Adam. Yes, the Bible refers to Christ as the last Adam. He was the last uh, federal head of humanity, as it were. He was representing us on the cross. And so, now, am I saying that you have to believe in a literal Adam to be saved? I'm not saying that. that very clearly, salvation is received by God's grace, received through faith in Christ, and not by works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible is very clear about that. But I would suggest that salvation really doesn't make a lot of sense, apart from the, the literal Genesis. It's not going to be clear to you, and it's not going to be clear when you share it with others either. Why do I need to be saved? A lot of people have that question, right? You say, you know, trust in Jesus. And they say, why? I'm basically a good person. You hear that a lot. You say, well, wait a minute. How many sins did it take to ruin the world? One. Yeah. And it wasn't like, again, it was, it was breaking the diet. It wasn't a big one. But it was treason against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that, that's a capital offense. And we've sinned many times. We deserve capital. We deserve a, a execution over and over and over again. We deserve an eternity in hell. So, you see, in order for the gospel, the good news, to make sense, you really have to understand the bad news. And that goes back to Genesis. The Bible really is the history book of the universe. Now, it has other types of literature. It has wisdom literature. But if you think about Genesis, it's history, isn't it? It's recording events that have happened throughout history, especially those events that are important in terms of our relationship to God. You know, the interesting thing is I find that even secularists like some of the morality the Bible teaches, some of it. They say, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. They don't like their wallet stolen. Or, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. They like that one too, in some cases. But you see, those, those moral teachings come out of the history. Why is it wrong to murder? Because human beings are made in the image of God. Why is it wrong to steal? Because God is apportioned to different people as he wills, and he holds them accountable for that. And so the history, the, the morality the Bible teaches comes out of the history. You can't separate those two. They go together. Jesus put it like this when he was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? The Bible discusses both. It discusses earthly things, matters of history, the days of creation, the flood at at Noah's time. And then it talks about heavenly things, spiritual matters, including salvation. If you say, yes, but I'm not sure I believe that all those details in Genesis, I'm not sure that... God really created in six days, or that there was really a worldwide flood. Well, hey, if God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? That's what I want to know. Does God know how to write a book, or doesn't he? Now, I think a God who can speak a universe into existence can probably write a book about it. Right? I've written books. not that hard. It's hard, but it's not as hard as creating a universe. You see my point. I think God can do that. I think God can clearly communicate with those creatures that he made in his image. God is a linguistic being. He speaks and the universe leaps into existence. So, of course, he can communicate with those creatures that he made uh, to have the ability to speak. But we get intimidated because you got God's word on the one hand and you got man's fallible word on the other. You know, Darwinian evolution, for example. Why do people change the infallible one when they want them to agree? We want to have it both ways, right? Because that's, that's just that's a great temptation for us. The, the Israelites did that. You say, how, how is it they wanted to serve Yahweh and also Baal? And, and uh, you know, Elijah says, you know, how long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? If God's God, serve him. If Baal's God, serve him. But we want to we have a foot in both camps. We want to say, on the, on the one hand, I want to agree with the secularists. On the other hand, I want to go with the Bible. There's an inconsistency there because you, to make those two agree, 
you got to modify one. And the one you modify is the one you don't really have your faith in, right? Because if you really stood on the Bible as God's word, you wouldn't change it to fit whatever the, the latest opinion of man is that comes along. And this is not the way that Jesus dealt with the situation in his earthly ministry. Jesus certainly had his critics, and they would come, and you know, they, would, they had their ways of reinterpreting God's word. And how did, how did Christ deal with them? Not in the modern, politically correct way of, well, you know, let's just agree to disagree, or that's not my personal opinion, but it's not a salvation issue, so let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not how Jesus dealt with that issue. He would say, it is written. Have you not read? Isn't that interesting? Jesus appealed back to the written word as his ultimate foundation, the word which his Holy Spirit inspired in the first place. I think it's interesting, too. You understand, of course, when Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you know, have you not read? Of course they'd read it. They were the scribes and Pharisees. He's, he's, using, he's actually using sarcasm there. Haven't, haven't you read this? Well, they, they'd read it. They hadn't applied it. They hadn't applied it because they were, their opinions trumped God's word, or so they thought. You can think of the battle that's going on in our culture today uh, a bit like these two cities. And so you have, the, you have Christianity, city of God, based on creation. God's word is truth. Uh, God's word is true from the beginning. And then you've got secular humanism. That is the other uh, great faith system that is competing for Christianity in our culture today. And it is based on evolution. Man independent from God determines truth. Oh, it certainly is. You thought, evolution, you thought secularism developed in a vacuum? No. They, it, it, the, as creation is the origins account that goes with Christianity, so evolution is the origins story that goes with secular humanism and makes sense of the values of the secular humanistic system in so much as they can have values. And so how are we fighting this battle? Maybe not as effectively as we could be. We're, we're, uh, we're shooting some billboards, and it's certainly, we, we certainly should do some of that. I'm not against that. But, you know, we should fight racism and we should fight abortion. But we've been doing that for a long time. And they're still around, right? Because, you see, these are, these are not the problems in and of themselves. They're symptoms of a much deeper problem, a rejection of God's word that begins in Genesis. And these symptoms crop up and we, we, we shoot the symptoms. We're not dealing with the problem. The secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. They're saying, so you can't trust, you can't trust Christianity because we know the, the first chapter of the Bible is all wrong. That didn't literally happen. Hmm. Well, how do we solve this issue? It's certainly fine to deal with some of these symptoms. We should do that. But we need to do more than that. We need to uh, fight against these arguments that, that uh, exalt themselves up against the knowledge of God. We need to cast them down. You know, any, any argument against creation, it's not going to be a good one. Right? You know that at the outset because you're arguing against something that's recorded history. That's not going to work. We need to point out that evolution is a bankrupt uh, system. It's not science in any kind of good sense, in the sense of operational science that makes computers work and puts people on the moon and things like that. Evolution, in that sense, is really more of a story about the past. And you could argue that it has this or that support, but I would say it really doesn't. Scientifically, it's bankrupt. And then we want to repair the damage that's done and, and, and say, you know, you can trust creation. This is God's word. Yes, the science lines up with that. I, I spend a lot of my time as a scientist showing how science confirms biblical creation. But you don't have to go out and be an expert at that to, to nonetheless say, hey, God, God has spoken. And that, that ends the debate right there. And then I like how this is illustrated, too, because we're not shooting at the people. 
uh, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't want to hurt them. We want them to get off of that that sinking sand and come over and join us on the on the city of God. We want them to become Christians, and we're not bashful about that. At the Biblical Science Institute, we want people to be saved. That's the point of doing what it is that we do. It really is. And I, th- I think it's um, yeah, th- there are organizations and even individual Christians as a matter of strategy that think, well, we can leave the Bible out of the discussion and I'll pretend to be neutral and I'll show you that there's a creator and then maybe we can, you know, in a stepwise fashion. I, I get that. But uh, I-, I like to lay all my cards on the table and say, hey, it's, it's, it's rational to be a Christian. It's irrational to be anything else. And the science lines up with a literal creation, just as put forth in, in Scripture. And let's talk about that. I mean, what's what's the stumbling block for you? Why are you struggling with that? And then we'll talk about that. I find people think that's refreshing, actually, to have honesty in that kind of situation. What about the time scale of creation? Some controversy there, although there really shouldn't be. The Bible tells us that God created in six days. Tells us what He did on each of those days of creation. Human beings are made on day six. And again, from those genealogies you love to read and so-and-so beget so-and-so, you get add up those ages, and you get something like 4,000 years between creation and Christ's incarnation, and that was about 2,000 years ago. So something like 6,000 years for the age of the universe. And boy, if you go around repeating that, people really think you're crazy, right? Because we know the Earth's 4.5 billion years old. We got pictures, right? No, we don't have pictures. Uh, but you'll find it in the textbooks, right? We know fossils are millions of years old because you'll find when you look, whenever you look at the fossil in the textbook, it's got the age right next to it. See, there it is, millions of years. It's got to be true. It's in the books, right? And I confirmed it on the internet, so it's got to be true. <laughs> or maybe in museums, you'll see fossils, and it'll have a little label, you know, X number of million years old. But let me clue you in: the fossil didn't come with that label on it. When you dig up a fossil, it doesn't immediately have a label attached telling you how old it is. Those were attached later by people who were not around when the fossil formed, in most cases, unless it's a very recent fossil, which does sometimes happen. But people get intimidated, and they think, well, the, you know, the scientists say the world's millions of years old, billions of years old even, So, but you know, I'm a Christian, and so how do I get the millions of years into Scripture? There's the, again, there's that great temptation to compromise, to take a bit of the Bible and add it to a bit of the the secular origin story and try to make them agree. Well, where are you going to fit the millions of years? You can't do it in between, for example, uh, Adam and Christ because the, the genealogies, just, there's just not that many people between Adam and Christ. And, uh, you know, the, the, for, for the first 2,000 years, it even gives the ages of them. You can add those up and you can get a pretty accurate number. We don't know how they round it off from one year to the next, so maybe you can't get an exact date, but it's certainly not going to, it's not going to allow for millions of years. You can't say, and so-and-so beget so-and-so, and then a million years later they beget so-and-so. That's not going to work. And so people try to put the millions of years into the creation week because that's the only place they can think to do it. You can't have millions of years between Adam and Christ, so you've got to get it before Adam. So where are you going to put the millions of years into the creation week? Well, there's a few different ways people try to do this. One is they'll say, well, maybe the millions of years happened before the beginning. Okay, and that's actually pretty easy to refute because if the millions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning. It would be the much later, right? <laughs> and the much later, the Lord, no, that's not what it says. It's in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Or they'll say maybe there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 for which there's no evidence in Scripture. I'll come back to that. Uh, one of the most common, though, is to say, well, maybe the days weren't really days. Maybe they were vast ages, hundreds of, hundreds of millions of years each. And again, the Bible doesn't say that. It uses the, the standard Hebrew word for day, yom. I'll come back and talk a little bit more about that. But people try to 
pull other scriptures out of context to try and support this idea that the days of creation were actually vast ages. And one of the most common is they'll say, oh, but, you know, Dr. Lyle, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.8 that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. So there you go. Those days might have been really, they might have been long periods of time. Well, first of all, this isn't referring, this isn't referring to the creation week anyway. It's not talking about the days of creation. But, and they only quote the first part of the verse out of context. What does the rest of the verse say? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Cancels that right out, you see. People only take the first part out of context to try and make time longer. I've never heard anyone take the second part out of context to try and make time shorter, right? Like, well, the Bible indicates 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ's earthly ministry, but 1,000 years is as a day. It's really only 48 hours. You don't hear anybody do that, and it would be ridiculous to do that. And it's not saying a day is 1,000 years. It's saying it's like that or as that. It's a simile. And and how can a day be like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day? Because God is beyond time, which is the true meaning of the verse. Because if you read it in context, it's not referring to the days of creation. It's referring to God, uh, from a human perspective, delaying judgment so that many, many people can be saved. It's explaining God's patience by pointing out that he's beyond time. He created time. It's not a problem for him. That's the context of the verse. And since God is beyond time... Whenever God uses time language, it is always for our benefit and to be understood on human terms. People sometimes treat God like he doesn't know what time it is, like he can't tell time. Uh, he, made, he made clocks in the universe. The, the, the luminaries are to be for signs, seasons, days, and years. God made clocks for us because we need, we need clocks to tell time. God does, and he made time. So this is not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see it in, in Scripture to a 1,000 years. And by the way, that would make the earth 12,000 years old instead of 6,000. doesn't get you anywhere close to the millions of years people think they need to add to Scripture. Now, the Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. Plural form is yamim. And yom means day. So why is it that people only question what does day mean in Genesis? Isn't that true? There are other days mentioned in Scripture. Why do people not say, well, that, you know, that might have been a long period of time. Like, how, how long was uh, Jonah in the belly of the great fish? Were those ordinary days? Well, I think they might have been millions of years, right? He might have been in there a very long time. You don't hear people arguing that. Or how long did, did Joshua really take to march around the walls of Jericho? Were the ordinary days or thousands of years? Who can say? We can't tell, right? He might have been doing that for a long time. Now, we understand that. We understand those are days. It's using that same word, yom or yamim. And uh, th- that is the main definition of yom. It's a day. Now, it can mean a period of time longer than 24 hours. When it's used in a, in a prepositional phrase like the, the day of the Lord, that could be a longer period of time. I get that. Uh, we do that in English as well. But, but my point is the main definition of yom is, is day. When it's being used in its literal sense, that's what it means. That's the literal meaning, day. In English, we use words metaphorically sometimes, including the word day. You might say, back in my father's day. Oh, you're not referring to a 24-hour day there. You're referring to a period of time, longer than 24 hours. Back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. Now, you got the word day used three times, and yet I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding what it meant because you used context. You used the surrounding words to constrain the meaning, and that's true in, uh, in all languages. Most most words can have more than one meaning depending on context. That's true in English and Hebrew and most other languages. So back in my father's day, yeah, that would be a period of time longer than 24 hours. 
It took three days. Well, those would be ordinary days, right? Because there's three of them. It wouldn't mean three long periods of time. That wouldn't make sense. To drive across Texas during the day, that would be the light portion of an ordinary day. All correct usages, of course, but you use context to discern that. It's the same with the Hebrew word, yom. And so let's take a look at yom outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree what it means. Again, no discussions about how long Jonah was really in the belly of the great fish and so on. So we find, for example, that when day is used in context with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. On the third day, he went up to such and such a city. Well, of course that's an ordinary day, and it, and there's, it happens over 400 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree it's an ordinary day if it's got a number with it like that. Or evening and morning. Even if the word day is not there, what's an evening plus a morning? Well, it's day. you got one part of the day and another part of the day. You add it up, you got a whole day. That happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree that's an ordinary day. If you had evening with day, if you said there was evening that day, or if you said there was morning that day, either one of those would constrain the meaning to an ordinary day. And it happens 23 times each outside of Genesis 1. If day is contrasted with night, if you said there was day and then you know that, that night such and such happened, you'd understand it's an ordinary day. It's contrasted with night, and it happens over 50 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree that's an ordinary day. So you got it? You got the contextual clues there? Day with a number, first, second, third. Uh, evening and morning together is a day. Evening with day makes it a day. Morning with day makes it a day. Or day contrasted with night makes it a day. So let's apply these contextual clues to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what these days are that God's talking about. So Genesis 1, verse 5, And God called the light day. Oh, there he's defining it for you, days when it's light out. So that would be an ordinary day, wouldn't it? And the darkness he called night. So you have night associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got evening associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got morning associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got evening and morning together. That constitutes an ordinary day. And you got a number with it. It's got to be an ordinary day. There's no doubt that first day is an ordinary day. God used about every contextual indicator he could possibly have used to indicate it's an ordinary day. You say, well, he could, he could have said it was, it was 24-hour days. Well, actually, no, because hours hadn't been invented yet. They were invented by the Egyptians much later. So that didn't exist at that time. But uh, even then, people would just start say, but yeah, but what's an hour? I mean, I, you know, that's 1 24th of this long period of time, apparently. Well, what about the other days of creation? Do they have any contextual clues that would indicate to us that these are ordinary days? Well, let's have a look. Day two, evening, morning, number, day. 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 It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's kind of like God saying, see, they're ordinary days. And in case you still don't get it, they're ordinary days. And in case you're a little thick, they're ordinary days. And in case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days. It's pretty clear. Now, some people get upset. They say, oh, but the sun wasn't made to the fourth day. That doesn't really affect the length of the day very much. The sun just provides a relatively permanent light source for us. As long as you have light in a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. Did we have light on the first day? Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yeah, we had light. Did we have a rotating planet? Evening and morning that first day, we had a rotating planet all the way back then. It's just God was providing a different, God himself perhaps providing light source for those first three days. Maybe so the Hebrews would be less inclined to worship the sun as the primary source of life. God's saying, I'm the primary source of life, the sun. He doesn't even call it by name. It's just the greater light and the moon is the lesser light, okay, to govern the night. Uh, sun to govern the day, the moon to cover the night. So 
There's no doubt that God created in six days. In fact, that is the origin of our work week. The reason we have a seven-day week is because that's how long it took for God to create and rest. He did that as a pattern for us. All the other units of time have a basis in astronomy. Uh, Day is a rotation of Earth on its axis. Month is the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's why it's called a month. It's a month. The words are related. Uh, Year is the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? Not from astronomy, from history. That's how long God chose to take to create and to rest. And the Bible is very clear about that in Exodus 20.11. We all like Exodus 20 because that's the Ten Commandments. That may Perhaps many of you have memorized that chapter. Verse 8 tells us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And then he goes on and explains, in six days you'll do all your labor, but the seventh is the Lord's. You're not to work on that day, etc., etc. Verse 11 is the explanation for why. Why is it that we have a seven-day week? For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and the rest of the seventh day. God did it that way as a pattern for us. Sometimes the critics will say, you know, what God resting on a day, is what, is he tired? No, God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to rest, but we do. And God did it that way as a pattern for us. And by the way, he's using the same word, actually in the plural form, yamim, which, is, which never means a long period of time. Yamim is always uh, days. It's in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth. Same word for our work week, the, the days that were, you know, six days and you rest one and so on. Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day and say that God actually made everything in an instant. There was a philosophy at that time that that's how it was done. And I like how Martin Luther responds to this philosophy because it's not a biblical philosophy. He says, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. And I love this last part. He says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. (laughs) Great quote and good advice. Well, there are folks who say, well, yeah, there's no doubt the days are ordinary days, but maybe we can still get millions of years in between verse 1 and verse 2 the so-called gap theory. So you have in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and they like to rip that apart from verse 2, and they say, you know, millions of years happened there. Maybe maybe Lucifer was given charge over that original world. Maybe there was a Lucifer's flood that destroyed it. And then verse 2, uh, they'd like to translate it, and the earth became without form and void. You really can't translate it that way in that context, though. It's just the earth was without form. But you really can't put a gap of time in between verse 1 and verse 2 for, for grammatical reasons, so uh, in the Hebrew language, so Genesis, of course, written in Hebrew, as most of the Old Testament was. And so verse 2 contains a Hebrew grammatical construction. Hebrew, by the way, Hebrew reads right to left, so opposite of English. Verse 2 has this expression, and the earth, vaharetz. And when you have that in, uh, in Hebrew, that's what's called a vav disjunctive. And basically, when you have and followed by a non-verb, now, normally in, in Hebrew, the verb comes first. So in the beginning, it's actually in the beginning, created God, the heaven and the earth. Okay, so normally the verb comes first. But you can, you can switch it if you want to. And when you switch it, it tells you that that, that verse uh, is, is following immediately from what happened. It's, it's following not in time, but it's explaining contextually what happened in the previous verse. It's explaining that first verse. So my point is verse 2 does not happen after verse 1. Verse 2 is explaining, clarifying verse 1. Because you see, if you just had verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, you might think, oh, so God 
when he, when he first created the heaven and the earth, it was just like it is now. It was full of life and trees and human beings. Verse 2 is explaining that's not the case. When God first created the heaven and the earth, it was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay? So we, we know that you can't put a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2 because of that Hebrew construction, the Vav disjunctive. Now, the rest of Genesis is Vav consecutive. That does follow in sequence. But there's no, there's no gap of, of time between these, these verses. Just this happened, and that happened, and so on. What about the science? There's a lot of science that confirms a, the biblical age for the earth. And I do other presentations on that. Maybe I've done one here on that, actually. But one of the, one of the little gems, just so I can just uh, get you to think about it, is uh, carbon dating. A lot of people think carbon dating gives millions of years. It never does. There are other methods that secular scientists believe support millions of years, potassium, argon, uranium, lead, and so on. Carbon-14, none of them really do, but carbon-14 actually is very powerful evidence for a young Earth. Because you see, carbon-14, most carbon is carbon-12. It's got you know, the six protons and the six neutrons in the nucleus. There's a variety of carbon called C-14. It has two extra neutrons. It's produced in the upper atmosphere when cosmic rays bombard uh, nitrogen atoms, convert them into C-14. And C-14, unlike ordinary C-12, C-14 is unstable which means it will spontaneously change into nitrogen. And it's, it seems to be random for any given atom, but it's kind of like popcorn. You don't know which kernel is going to pop next, but after two minutes, it's pretty well done. If they're going to pop, they've popped. And so it's the same way with, with carbon-14. You get enough of them, and you can, you can see the rate at which they decay, and they have a half-life of 5,700 years, which means if you had C-14 after 5,700 years, you'd only have half of it. The rest of it would have decayed into nitrogen. Okay, And now the interesting thing about that is that means carbon-14 cannot last millions of years. Based on that rate of decay, it's an exponential decay, uh, if the entire Earth had started as nothing but C-14, after one million years, you'd not have one atom of it left. It would all be, they would all have converted to nitrogen in that amount of time. And so the fact that we find C-14 in diamonds that secularists believe to be one to two billion years old tells us they're nowhere near that. They can't even be one million years old or the carbon would be gone. These are buried deep down in the earth where they're, they're insulated from cosmic rays, so you can't produce new C-14 in any measurable uh, rate. So that's just, one, that's just one of many lines of evidence that limits the age of the earth to thousands of years. There's lots of things like that in science. You tend not to hear about those ones as much because they go against the narrative. But my next question is, is it important? Because historically what happened is uh, many of the secular scientists came along and said, the Bible's not true, the Earth's millions of years old. We know that because we know these rock layers were deposited by our, our calculations. And some of them were very adamant that they, they wanted to divorce science from the Bible. They wanted to make sure that, that science could survive on its, on its own, which it really can't because it requires a biblical worldview in order for it to be justified. But in any case, they, they tried to intimidate people and they were successful. And a lot of the theologians, not all of them, but a lot of them compromised and said, well, maybe we can allow the millions of years because, after all, it's not a salvation issue. And I certainly agree that it's not a salvation issue in the sense that nobody's saying you have to believe in six days to be saved. Fortunately, God saves us by his grace received through faith in Christ. And we, don't, we can't add to that We couldn't if we tried. Uh, God doesn't require us to have perfect theology. We do have to have some correct theology, like an understanding of who Christ is and that he died for our sins and so on. But God doesn't require perfection. That being said, 
After salvation, we ought to get our theology as right as possible out of gratitude for salvation. And so I would argue that while the six days issue is not um, essential to salvation, it is an important issue in the same way that gravity is an important issue and yet not a salvation issue, right? You cannot believe in gravity. You'll still go to heaven. You'll probably get there a lot sooner that way. Um, It is an important issue. It's important for at least two reasons that I'm going to cite. First of all, it's important because it is what the Bible teaches. Now, the Bible doesn't give us an exact date of creation, but it, it does give us sufficient information that we can know that it's, the world's not millions of years old. It really isn't. And I realize that you know, most of us can't read the Bible in the original languages, and we're relying on translation. So it's good to go back and check if you can. You can with computer software these days, it's amazing what you can do. You can go back and look at the original language and have it immediately translated. But once you do that and you, you establish, you know, no, the text really does mean six days, then that's what we need to accept because it is the inerrant word of God. God does know how he created. He was, he was there after all. You see, the same uh, Bible that teaches all these different doctrines teaches in six days. In fact, that section of Scripture that says, In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth to see all that's in them, that's Exodus 20.11. That was written by the finger of God in stone. I think it's interesting. That's the place people want to most compromise is the one place where God didn't use a human agent. Normally, God used people to write his word in a way that's a little mysterious to us. It's 100% his word, but he used the author's personality and style, except in Exodus 20, where he just writes it himself. I think that's interesting. The same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches these other things that we believe, like the virgin birth of Christ, that Jesus walked on um, water, that he turned water into wine, he calmed the storm, raised the dead, raised himself from the dead. Doesn't the same Bible teach all those things? Yeah. If you say, yes, but I don't think the six days thing is, is true because the secular scientists tell me that's impossible. They know the world's millions of years old. I got news for you. Most secular scientists would say virgin birth and human beings, not possible. Turning water into wine, not possible. Resurrection from the dead, not possible. Are you going to reinterpret those sections? Say, well, that's just a metaphor. That didn't really happen. And by the way, Jesus' resurrection, that is a salvation issue. If Jesus is not raised, you're still in your sins. Your faith is in vain, according to the Apostle Paul. So, and, and <laughs> granted, some people will say, oh, but, but Dr. Lau, that list over there on the right, th- those are miracles. And so those aren't, you know, constrained by science. And I'm thinking, wasn't the creation of the universe a miracle? I'd like to see you do it. <laughs> There's another reason why we don't want to add the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the world. And we do find fossils all over the world. It's amazing. And a fossil, of course, is the remains of, a, of an uh, animal or plant or even microbes that have been buried, and the, they've been usually permineralized, where the, usually the soft tissue has, has sufficient time to decay, but the bones are, get all permineralized. It's a record of death, really. When, you, when you're looking at a fossil of an, of an animal or a human being, you're looking at something that was alive and now isn't. It's dead. And if you think about that, if, if those are millions of years old, then that means death has been around for millions of years, right? And that means that Adam did not introduce death into this world, as the Bible says. Because we all agree human beings don't go back, say, 100 billion years. Even the secularists concede that. Human beings are recent. And so that's a problem, because doesn't the Bible say that it was by man that death came into the world? It's mentioned a number of times in scriptures in different ways. But if you believe in millions of years, even if you don't accept evolution, you say, but I think God created over hundreds of millions of years, then you've got death before man. Which is it? Is it by, is it by death came man or by man came death? Those are, those are logically contrary positions. They cannot both be true. 
so you have the uh, you know you have the Garden of Eden. Eve saying something like, "Well, God's creation is perfect," and Adam's saying, "God said it's very good." And, well, he's right. This is wonderful. The Bible says that, right? God. It wasn't just the Garden of Eden. God saw everything He'd made, and behold, it was very good. The Bible says there at the end of Genesis one. And so here's the problem, though: if the fossils were already there, and you've already had death and struggle for millions of years, and that means you got the Garden of Eden sitting on top of millions of years of death and struggling and disease, bloodshed. You know, we find fossils with evidence of disease in them, things like uh, cancer, arthritis. There's, there's an entire field called paleopathology that studies disease in fossils. Now, if those fossils are hundreds of millions of years old, that means you've got death, suffering, disease, bloodshed, all that kind of stuff. And God's looking at it and saying, oh, it's very good. That's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem. Now, some people would say, oh, but uh, it's just human death that entered the world when Adam sinned. But I don't think you can defend that. Because if you think about it, when Adam sinned, God confronted them, and then he provided skins of clothing. Where do you think those skins came from? Animals. God instituted animal death at the time Adam sinned. And some people think that's unfair. And in, in a way it is, but in a way it isn't. Because, you see, Adam was given authority over the world. And when you are in authority, when someone's in authority and they do something wicked, all the people under their authority suffer. Isn't that true? Do I have to explain that? <laughs> we, we've certainly seen that in the, lately in our own society, haven't we? When our leaders sin, we feel the brunt of it as well. That's the, because if, the, if, if we didn't, then they're not really in authority. Not really. Now, some people say, oh, but I got you here. Because plants at least had to die before Adam sinned. And the interesting thing about that is, biblically, plants are not considered alive. Isn't that interesting? Biblically, they're considered food, albeit self-replicating food. Pretty neat. But they're not classified as a living creature. The Bible uses the word nephesh, the Hebrew word for living, living life, nephesh kai. And uh, plants uh, are not ever called nephesh kai. Animals are, human beings are. Plants are different. And so, yes, you could have a plant cycle. Yes, Adam and Eve could eat plants, but that's not a problem. Okay, that's different from animal death. And and we know that. We can talk about a dead plant, but somehow that's different from a dead animal, isn't it? I mean, you can talk about a dead battery, but that doesn't mean it was ever really alive. And plants are not alive in the same way animals are. We know that. You you come across a so-called dead tree, you say, well, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it on my mantle. That's great. If you come across a dead animal, you say, well, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it. It's different, isn't it? We recognize this as an intrusion into a world that was once perfect. See, the Bible makes it clear the world was very good when God first made it. And that means all those fossils came afterward as a result of sin. We now live in a world that's broken and fallen. We have, we have problems in the world today. We see them. That's why we've got to be a little bit careful about you know, you know, talking to our unbelieving friends and say, look at all this beauty in the world. Yes, there is because of God. But there's also ugliness because of man's sin. And the Bible's clear that there will be a restoration. The world that was uh, once very good will be made very good again because of Christ's obedience. People today feel very entitled and they, they get upset when somebody dies. Some God of love you are. Why did you allow my friend to die? Uh, because that's what we asked him for when we sinned against him. We need to recognize the world is in rebellion against God. The world hates God. And so when somebody dies, that's what, we, that's what we all deserve. You realize that? When somebody dies, you shouldn't be blaming God. You should be saying, wait a minute, this, that's what I deserve too. 
And the only reason I take my next breath is because of God's grace. You don't deserve it. What you deserve is death and hell. All of us. It's only by God's grace you take your next breath. How many breaths have you taken today? That's a lot of grace, isn't it? Changes your perspective on things. A friend of mine who's, who's uh, also a pastor at, at my church, we were eating lunch one time, and I was kind of having a bad day, and, and uh, he asked, you know, how you doing, how you doing today? And I said, well, you know, con- considering I deserve death and hell, pretty good. <laughs> Puts a different perspective on things when you realize what you're really entitled to. What about uh, the, the other thing about these fossils, though, I should point out, is that it would make sense to have fossils all over the earth if there was a worldwide flood. And that's what I think deposited those fossils. The Bible talks about a worldwide flood. But do you know that those people who, who want to add the millions of years, they don't believe in a worldwide flood because a worldwide flood would destroy any previous fossil record. Okay, And so uh, those people who, even Christians, who say, well, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I'm glad you are. Praise God for that. But they say, I don't believe that the days of creation were literal. I think they were long periods of time. And they don't believe in a worldwide flood. I'm thinking of one in particular who teaches that there was a flood of Noah's day, but it was limited to the Mesopotamia Valley. It was not a global flood. And he believes that all humans were living there at the time. But what does the Bible say about the extent of the flood? Is it consistent with that position, that it's just local, and the fossils elsewhere are millions of years old? No. Let's look at the text. Genesis six seventeen. God says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy a few things here and there. No, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from, what, the local Mesopotamia Valley? No, from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. And you continue reading, the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. All the high hills covered? Under the whole heaven, that means under the sky. Every, Every hill on earth was covered with water. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. The mountains were covered. That's not going to happen with a local flood. All flesh died that moved upon the earth, every creeping thing, every man, all in whose nostrils was of the breath of life. Of all those in the dry land died, every living substance was destroyed. Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him on the ark. The Bible's pretty clear about that, isn't it? The whole earth was flooded. That that's, explains these fossils that we find all over the earth. And those folks who say, oh, no, it was just a local flood. But wait a minute. It, it was covering the high hills. How does a local flood cover the high hills? What would that look like? It would look like this. Makes no sense, does it? Water seeks its own level. What about the rainbow? God's promise never to send another global flood. But if it was just a local flood, and God was promising never to send another local flood, then guess what? That means God's broken his promise thousands of times, because we do have local floods. Why would you build an ark the size of an ocean liner, take two of every air-breathing land animal, including birds, by the way, which could easily escape a local flood, for a local flood that you knew was coming? Why not just move? Right? <laughs> I would think that would be a lot easier. I'm an astronomer, so we've got to do a little astronomy here. Here's a picture of the surface of Mars. And we've got a new uh, instrument on the surface, by the way. Now, this, this one came with a little helicopter. I'm really anxious to see that thing get off the ground, because flying on Mars is not easy because the atmosphere is very thin. So it's technological breakthrough, really. But the interesting thing is some of these places where they've landed, there's evidence of water in the past, which is interesting. Floods, even. Uh, a quote from a newspaper says, A flood of biblical proportions, enough to fill a Mediterranean sea, gushed down from the highlands of Mars a billion or so years ago. The latest pictures from the Pathfinder confirmed Monday. 
And I find that fascinating because if you don't know anything about Mars, Mars today has no liquid water on it. Secular scientists are willing to believe in a flood of biblical proportions on a planet that has no liquid water. But Earth, which is currently 71% flooded with water, they say, well, it's not, it's not possible to have a flood here on the Earth. <laughs> you see the problem there? Inconsistent. I'm going to skip some of these for time's sake. But this, this is really what it comes down to. The church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus. Come to the cross and be saved. That's the gospel. That's, what we want to, that's the whole point. Yes, we want to be sharing that. We need to recognize that it's come under attack, though. One of the attacks is millions of years. And that impacts. And the funny thing about that is when that impacts, we tend to think, well, that's a miss, right? I mean, that, that doesn't touch the cross. That's not a salvation issue. But what we fail to recognize is that millions of years is an attack on Genesis. And Genesis is foundational to understanding the gospel. It's because of what Adam did and the fact that we're descended from him. We're sinners descended from sinners. That's why we need a Savior. It goes back to Genesis. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross saying, oh, Jesus never lived, or at least he, he didn't, he raised from the dead, we're concerned about that. We get, you can get books to defend the resurrection. We understand that's important. So Satan names it our foundation, and we think it's a side issue. It's not. It's foundational. And these different attacks came historically. Naturalism, evolution, eight men, millions of years, no global flood, they impact. They're having an effect, folks. We think, we think it's a miss, but it isn't. It's a direct hit. And what is the result of all these different attacks on Genesis? The result is unbelief. As Jesus put it, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so then these different symptoms happen in our culture. You know, newsflash, prayers outlawed in schools. We don't like that. That's, that's bad. We say, wait, trust in Jesus, which we should do, of course. Uh, creation's outlawed in schools. And, and we focus on, well, hey, Jesus is going to return. Yes, he is, but he's told us to do some things in the meantime, like make disciples of all nations, okay? And then the Bible's outlawed in schools. And, and we say, well, let's get the Bible back into schools. And, and please don't misunderstand. I'm all for, for doing what we can politically. But if the culture's going to be one to Christ, it won't be through politics. That's just all I'm, that's all I'm saying. We need to do a, a, a great deal more than that. Ten Commandments outlawed in schools. And the church says, well, let's concentrate on worship. We can be doing lots of good things as Christians, but if we're not doing what God told us to do to defend the faith, once, delivered, once and for all delivered to the saints, and be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in us, if we're not doing that, then the gospel will become obscured by unbelief. And I, I feel like this is the situation as it is today in the minds of most people. They don't think they can trust the gospel because they think the Bible's a book of fairy tales. And that begins in Genesis. Those attacks begin in Genesis. So that's why I founded the Biblical Science Institute. We're a parachurch ministry. Of course, I'm a member of my own local uh, church as well. But as, as a parachurch ministry, we come alongside the church. We repair the damage that's been done, show you you can trust in uh, Genesis. You can trust in the Bible from the very beginning. It's all God's word and therefore inerrant. And then when these different attacks come, we want to warn you, these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then we show you how to refute these different arguments with the different resources that we have. And then ultimately, we'd like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to recognize when these attacks come that these are attacks on the Christian faith, and then every Christian should be able to defend the faith against that. God calls a few people. He gives us a certain special passion to go out and, and do full-time uh, apologetics as a vocation, but we're all supposed to do apologetics if we're, if we're Christians. And hopefully, uh, organizations like the Biblical Science Institute can make that easier for you by, by taking the information and researching it and condensing it into a book that you can read and, and uh, share with your friends. And then the church can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. 
And people say, oh, I, I, I get it now. I understand. It's because of what Adam did. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner uh, in, a, in a long line of sinners. I've committed high treason against the king of kings. I deserve death. I can't enter that new world or I'd ruin it the same way I ruined this one. That's why I need a savior. Then the gospel makes sense. It only makes sense if the Bible is true, if it's trustworthy. We do have some uh, resources I'd encourage you to check out, including our website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. We'll come back to that. Uh, if you want a book that really shows how to defend the literal reading of, of Genesis, and you know, because not all the Bible is meant to be understood in a wooden literal sense, how do we how do we read it? How do, how are we supposed to read the Bible? That's the book you want to get, and then share with your your friends that are maybe a little uh, confused on the issue and are thinking that Genesis maybe isn't they're, you know Christian they're Christian but they're thinking Genesis isn't maybe real history. It really is. Uh, this presentation we have that on on DVD if you want to uh, get that. Uh, ultimate proof of creation. If you if if you is there a bulletproof argument that absolutely refutes evolution and demonstrates that creation is true? Yes, there is. I'm not kidding about that. It's in that, it's in that book. That doesn't mean that everybody will convert because people sometimes are not convinced even by a very good argument. But that doesn't mean they can't refute it. That doesn't mean they can, or that doesn't mean they can refute it. We have this on DVD as well, Ultimate Proof of Creation. If you want to learn to think and debate the way that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, those are the resources you want to get. Jesus was not the sort of person you wanted to debate against. You can learn to do that, too. Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, just a fun resource on how to better enjoy the night sky from a Christian perspective. Star charts, when's the next meteor shower? Uh, you say, I don't have a telescope. That's a, there's a lot of stuff you can see naked eye. If you want to get a telescope, what kind you want, want to get and how to use it. Uh, they're, not, they're not expensive, really. Uh, so taking back astronomy, now this one is more of an apologetics focus. If you want to see how the, how the science refutes the Big Bang and confirms biblical creation, this is the book you're going to want to get. If you want something with a little more meat, The Physics of Einstein. Uh, it's, just, it's just what it promises. If you'd like to learn more about what is it that Einstein discovered and how is that confirmation of the Christian worldview. And by the way, I think this leads to the solution to the so-called distant starlight problem. If you're curious about that, I have what well, I think the answer is in that, in that book. Keeping faith in an age of reason answers over 400 alleged Bible contradictions. Have you heard people claim that? You know, well, you can't trust the Bible. This verse contradicts that verse. I went through and looked at them, a list that, that secularists had compiled of over 400. Not one of them was a legitimate contradiction. Not that I had any doubts, but it was fun to, to research that, and this is a way you can kind of, as a quick reference, or you can read through it. Discerning truth, if you want to spot logical fallacies in arguments that evolutionists make. Evolution is not based on good reasoning. There's, there's always a fallacy there in the arguments that they present. And then if we, I actually have a, a, an introduction to logic uh, curriculum. I really had homeschoolers in mind uh, when, when I wrote this. But if you're, you know, if you say, well, I'm an adult and I just want to get better at thinking properly, this is, this is the resource for you. Uh, it, very, very helpful, not just in apologetics, but in theology. And when you read the Bible, you want to use your brain properly as you read it so that you're not putting your own ideas into the Scripture, but reading it for what it's worth and so on. We have a teacher's guide for that as well. And uh, Created Cosmos, this is the planetarium show that I wrote for the Creation Museum. You can get that on DVD if you like. Creation Evangelism, how to use creation to, to witness to people more effectively by showing them how salvation is rooted in Genesis. Uh, for the youngsters, I recommend Dinosaurs in the Bible. That's a fun, that's a fun resource. And I, I sometimes think that God made dinosaurs just to get kids interested in the Bible because the Bible does have some things to say on this topic, interestingly. Astronomy Reveals Creation DVD. Worlds of Creation takes you on a tour of the solar system. That's a fun program. Secret Code of Creation shows you, um, this is amazing, the, the beauty built into an aspect of creation that you probably never even thought about. And I would submit there is no secular answer to what you're going to see in there. 
It's, it's, just, it's just the Christian worldview and God painting an amazingly beautiful artwork. And we have that on Blu-ray as well because it's really pretty. I'd encourage you to get that. The book will come out hopefully next month that goes along with that. So if you, you can get all of our uh, books together for a discount. You can get all of our DVDs together for a discount. You can get all of our books and DVDs, or almost all of them, for a tremendous discount. That's only available at this conference or this evening. And then we do have children's resources as well. We don't always bring those, but we thought we'd have those ready for you because uh, the children are, are getting hit harder and harder. And uh, it's important to equip them at a very young age to think rightly, to think biblically. We do have a, a newsletter if you want to sign up for that. It's a monthly newsletter. You'll get it on the 15th. It's an electronic letter, so make sure you put your email address or you'll get nothing. Okay? <laughs> Write it legibly or you'll get nothing. And uh, again, that's, that's free. We just want to bless you. So not too many things free in this world, just salvation and our newsletter. So uh, <laughs> check us out as well at the biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And we'll come back in a little bit and do the Q&A later. Yep. Thanks. Thanks.